From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, political analyst Joe Tuman returns to offer his insights on the current state of the Trump administration and the state of the American Republic. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. In what could only be described as astonishing, the New York Times recently reported that in the days after President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, the FBI became so concerned that they began investigating whether the president was working on behalf of Russia and against American interests. Several days later, BuzzFeed ran a story alleging that President Trump ordered his then-attorney, Michael Cohen, to lie before Congress, prompting special counsel Robert Mueller's office to release a statement stating, quote, BuzzFeed's description of specific statements to the special counsel's office and characterization of documents and testimony obtained by this office regarding Michael Cohen's congressional testimony are not accurate. Meanwhile, public discourse is consumed, and understandably so, with the government shutdown that has displaced 800,000 government workers and scores of government contractors potentially impacting everything from maintenance and access to our national parks and museums to crucial work conducted by the Food and Drug Administration. To help us make sense of these unprecedented times, we welcome once again political analyst Joe Tuman. Joe Tuman, welcome back, and happy belated Happy New Year. And thank you, and same to you, and it's a pleasure to be back on your program. I'd like to begin this conversation with having you fill in the blank uh, to the following and then explain your response. Okay. The State of the Union is? Delayed until the president opens <laughs> the government <laughs> up again. Um, our, the state of our union, though, I'm being funny, the state of our union is uh, not good at this point. Um, thankfully, things work because we have a system that's pretty strong, but the political leadership uh, is not there. It's, I think, on a daily basis, more and more obvious. We have uh, a White House administration that is clearly compromised by Russian influence um, and maybe worse. And... Uh, we have a president who, who thinks that the best way to get what he wants, in his case, a, a, a wall, um, which he claimed Mexico would pay for and which he alleged, originally said would stretch across the country, um, uh, is the best way to get that is to, is to, to furlough and not pay uh, 800,000 federal workers in ways that will, you know, after all these days, have a significant impact on our economy. I, I don't see how that's anything good. And even if our system is strong enough to withstand some of these pressures, uh, the United States has gone from being a world leader, a country that people want to come to when they're suffering somewhere else, to being a country that's mocked and made fun of. And 
that's all happened on Mr. Trump's watch. So the state of our union is not good right now. How much of the public discourse, in your opinion, is related to the fact that outside of Robert Mueller and his team, no one knows what he knows, but that doesn't seem to prohibit us from freely engaging in conjecture, masquerading as fact. Or, or, um, it, and that's doing very little to move uh, discussion forward. How much of that is affecting what's going on with us today? The, the, the fact that we don't know what Mueller knows. Um, in some ways, uh, I almost, I, I truthfully believe this. Uh, and, and I think as a journalist yourself, you'll appreciate the comment I'm about to make. I think we are... We are in a, a wonderful period, a renaissance uh, for, for journalism, and especially for print journalism, um, you know, your, your background, uh, where people you know, were trained to <laughs> dig for facts and, and look into things carefully and, and uh, stay on a story. And I think the New York Times, uh, certainly the Washington Post, I've been delighted to see the Wall Street Journal as well, mm-hmm. uh, and many others have really thrown in. Occasionally you get what we got last week uh, in the online, you know, the digital news environment world, which is probably where we're all going eventually after we stop putting this stuff on paper. Um, you get mistakes that were made. Uh, although I bet even in the end, uh, when, when all is said and done about what it was that BuzzFeed reported concerning this question of whether or not Trump asked uh, for someone to lie, um, that probably most of what BuzzFeed reported will probably pro- be proved to be correct, but the way that they characterize some things will have been, as Mr. Miller said, inaccurate. I think on the whole, it's, it's, it's strong. And so I'm sorry that's a long-winded answer no. to your question, but I think that, that the way that the discourse is being driven these days is very much uh, a product of how tenacious our news coverage of this has been. And a lot of that, ironically, I think, Byron, is driven by how much – Donald Trump is disliked. He has his base, but you know the the intensity with which people who didn't vote for him dislike him, and there's more of them than people who voted for him. Um, I think is fueling this this journalistic you know fury. And of course, Trump made it worse for himself by <laughs> continuing to say that the the news people are the enemy of the American people, um, and that's what's driving this discourse a lot. Is isn't um. Are you concerned, let me say it that way, are you concerned, though, that just some of the intensity that you talked about um, of uh, the feelings against the president, uh, could that also work against them in that I'm thinking specifically of um, uh, newly elected representative um, Rashida uh, Tlaib and mm-hmm. and her expedite um induced statement about impeaching Trump and and, and the round of applause that gathered uh, about uh, my take was she had already made up her mind about the most important vote that you could take in the House of Representatives. And and so that type of overstepping, that type of certainty and fueled by the intensity you talked about, could that ultimately work against those who have that? I agree, yes, because uh, uh if we if we start with Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House, she has uh, certainly a coalition of people who are are like herself. And and Nancy, depending upon what issues we're talking about, is certainly left of center, but she's not far left of center. And on some issues, she might be right in the middle. 
on things. You know, that's, there's a reason she's now had that job twice. She's not stupid about these things. And we have a, a, an equally large, well, I won't say an equally large, but a, a substantially large contingent of people who are new uh, in, in the House as well. Um, that that are far more left of center and and would like you know uh, this to go much further than it's going right now. So uh, I, I think the difference between those two is is reflected in the results that we see. Um, but you know, to your original your original question about this was uh, I'm, I'm no. Sure my I'm original question better. is, but with but that intensity creates a, a certain amount of – creates some certainty so that and, – and, and I'm not picking on Representative Tlaib, but she sounded certain and she didn't need any more inf- information to go through with what I view as the most important vote you could take as a member of House of Representatives. And could that type of behavior work against those who are in opposition to the president right now? Well, I, I, the person we're talking about is in her first term, obviously enough. And and as are many of these individuals, and uh, I, I I do not mean to sound judgmental at all when I use the word naivete, but maybe that's not the right word. There's 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 an impression you can have of an institution from the outside looking in uh, that 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 you garner from reading news articles or talking to people or whatever, observing for yourself what you see, and then there's the impression that you have when you're in that environment on a daily basis and you understand that politics is very much about trade-offs and decisions and not everybody can stick 100 percent to what the plan is because um, everybody has a different set of interests in things and and the way that decisions are made uh, in congress or in the executive branch um, often has to do with trade-offs that that you have to be willing to make to get the concessions we don't have uh, even mr trump we don't have dictators in this country we have some people who are strongly influential, but at the end of the day, things have to be compromised. And so I, I think to your question that, that some of the – I, I want to say this in a polite way. I don't mean to demean someone, but one of the, the naivete that sometimes people have about how our government works um, really uh, affects their willingness to take extreme positions like what we've been talking about. And then they understand when they get into it that there are lots of things that you can do, but everything involves some level of compromise. What are you willing to give up in, in order to get what you're looking for? And uh, so I, I suspect that, that some of what we're just talking about here with this person's example um, is an easy thing to say on the outside looking in as you're coming in. But once you've been working inside government for a time, you'll understand that, that everything is about trade-offs. And and so taking those kinds of extreme and rigid positions is a luxury, but you know it's not going to help you to get any laws passed because you need cooperation from other people who don't share your views, and there are things you have to trade off, and that's that's how it works. It's always how it's worked, and and they'll discover that in time as well. Uh, I, I we began this conversation. I asked you about the state of our union, so I'm curious, what do you make of the reports? that uh, President Trump uh, obtained the interpreter's notes from his meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, that, that, that's certainly not a standard operating procedure. No, and, and uh, what it says on the face of it, uh, if we're looking to an interpret, is this is someone who is uh, concerned about uh, controlling a, a news narrative 
of, of uh, what was said. And uh, that by itself is not necessarily incriminating, but when you put that in the context of so many other things, uh, unusual statements that the president has made, even just to, to modernize this discussion, to go from that to the, the modern time, you, you've got this uh, this oligarch, uh, what's his name, Oleg uh, Deripaska, and um, you know, Mr. Trump is pushing Congress uh, to uh, lift sanctions on this man. And uh, this is someone who's deeply conflicted <laughs> in a number of ways um, with the United States. And uh, uh, it's very clear that in, in, in lifting these sanctions and allowing him, even though they're claiming that, that he's going to get this business back, he controls a very large aluminum interest, I think the largest in the world. Um, that there will still be limits on his behavior and the like. But the truth is, in Russia, the way these things work, he's going to be as powerful and more powerful than he was before. This kind of behavior on the part of the Trump administration and, and getting cooperation from conservative Republicans in Congress, and God knows what they're implicated by with this, is just very, very difficult to understand at this point when we know all that we do about uh, Russian behavior in our political elections, uh, Russia's uh, international intentions towards uh, the countries that it, it uh, borders with, its involvement now in the Syrian conflict, uh, Mr. Putin's ambitions beyond that as well. Um, you know, Putin allows at this point a number of oligarchs uh, to serve and to profit heavily, but but he gets a cut of what's going on, and they and they keep him in power basically. Is the way that this works, and that's clearly not a system we politically support in this country, and it's produced some pretty nasty results affecting us as well. Well, you you mentioned what what, what we wouldn't support, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. How do we get to a place? Uh, these are my words, not yours. But we seem like what you just outlined. If um, President Trump was in the opposition, or let's say that that those those practices were conducted by former President Barack Obama, uh, they would not be accepted. So so that seems to me to be a willingness to look the other way when it's our side and and then condemn, you know, the opposition if they did something even remotely close to that. How, how do we get to return to where the party, is, I mean, the politics, I mean, the country is preeminent over the party, over the parties? Well, that's a that's a really great question, um, and and I'll I'll take a stab at an answer for it. Uh, I think part of the problem uh, initially is is that uh, we've had wild swings uh, in in the voting behavior for the last several elections, with people being pretty much polarized in one camp or the other, and. Uh, Republicans, not all Republicans, obviously enough, are in in bed with a lot of, uh, or you know, in step rather with a lot of uh, Mr. Trump's, you know, pretty extreme positions on things. They're they're Republican voters are as complicated and and multifaceted as Democratic voters or Libertarians or whomever you you, you name it. Everybody has their own a complex background, um, but generally. Uh, you know, the country has been divided into this, this situation, and uh, I think people naively assumed that uh, Trump would lose uh, the last election, and, and I'll put myself in that camp as somebody who was working that election night. I really thought it, the only way he could win was to run the table, and I thought the odds were pretty strongly against that. But um, 
we know with now with Russian interference that that he won just by enough in, in a couple of places to put him over the top, at least on the electoral college map, even though if he didn't win the votes, and. I think that election exposed what is a very wide divide uh, in this country between people who who like Donald Trump's vision of things. I don't want to be overly critical of them, but let's say people who who maybe don't have a global perspective about things, don't always understand the subtleties of all these issues. And you contrast that with, with people who do grasp those nuances and those differences or perhaps have a different worldview. And... Uh, so we're left in this situation now where, where even reasonable, responsible, uh, longstanding members of the United States Senate and the Republican Party um, have taken uh, fairly radical positions or, or indifferent in doing nothing. I, I, Mitch McConnell, by way of example, is a veteran insider of Washington, D.C. He totally understands how, he, how this things were at work. And... There's nothing in his life history, um, having served in, in Washington, D.C., that indicates that he's a cuckold uh, for Russian policy or for Russian leaders. And yet he kind of, in this instance, is blindly looking the other way. And I think most of us, myself included, assumed early on in the last two years that his behavior was because he was waiting to push some legislation through and kind of keep Trump happy and get Trump to sign it. And then eventually he would return to the usual way of dealing with Democrats and bipartisanship and the rest of it. And instead, he's been remarkably quiet. And I don't think he's compromised by the Russians, but uh, their influence over Mr. Trump and Mr. Trump's willingness to go to the mat on every stupid issue um, in many ways has silenced them. There's, you know, the, the Republican Party is paying a price for their silly tax initiative that they pushed. And uh, part of that is having enabled and empowered Trump, and he's now in charge of their, their party, and that party is not even recognizable anymore by it. So these are, in, in, in answer to your question, this is the reality we're dealing with, I think, today, and it's, it's really different. What we need is a return to some kind of bipartisanship, which is why I hope going forward, regardless of how we decide Mr. Trump's fate in this, whether he'll be impeached or removed or he'll run again in the 2020 cycle and lose, whatever it is. Regardless of that, um, it's important that Democrats and Republicans learn to see each other as you know, equals again and colleagues uh, that can reach out across the aisle. And you know, this stuff has to be bipartisan anyway, by the math, mm -hmm. and learn to work with each other again. And, and we're living right now in an environment where, for a lot of different reasons, is, is a huge amount of mistrust. But Joe, you've been around politics a long time. You know that you understand its cyclical nature, and that there are Democrats laying in the weeds to repay not only for some of the things you mentioned in some of the behaviors in this administration, but there's some people who are not happy about what happened to Merrick Garland, and they're waiting yeah. for retribution. You know that's how it works, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Payback is a <laughs> right, <laughs> rhymes right. with which. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, there, there is there is some of that. There will always be some of that. And I guess the difference, Byron, from my perspective as somebody who watches politics or has watched it for many years, is there was doing that kind of payback because there needed to be a public example made uh, of somebody so that the warning is clear to everybody else. You don't engage in this kind of behavior. There will, there will be a price that you'll pay. There'll be a cost for this. And 
I think where we are right now is mostly it's uh, everything is tit for tat. It's it's uh, transactional. The the retaliation is kind of expected in lots of ways. It's not about sending a message or creating an example. It's simply about you you know you did this to us, so now we're going to do this to you. And this environment that we live in right now is uh, that principle, not principle, but that form of behavior is all about Trump. And everything he thrives. You know, we, we look at it and we see in his behavior, whether it's his politics or in his business past, I, I see nothing but chaotic behavior. But, you know, from Mr. Trump's perspective, I think, as somebody watching him, um, he sees that as a necessary way of, of conducting his business, whether it's the business of building hotels or failing casinos or whatever, or running government. Um, he's constantly pushing things. It's very interesting. I won't, I'll try not to make this answer too long, but it's really interesting to compare him to a president like FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was famous, uh, if you listen to historians talking about him today, for inviting people into the, the White House and giving them, uh, each of them, it, they wouldn't be in the presence of each other, the same, the same job, to go, go, go figure this out. And basically what he was doing was hoping that by assigning the same the quest or the question to different people, he could get as many different answers coming back to him as possible. And then he would see if some of them, there was consensus. And he would usually look for that consensus and say, well, if a number of you independently came to the same conclusion, it must be a good idea. You get nothing like that with Trump. With Trump, uh, it's, it's mostly about uh, what makes him look good. I don't even know what his agenda is anymore at this point beyond building a wall and running again in 2020. It's hard to know if he even has an agenda. But mostly his public pronouncements are about sticking it to the other side and also sticking it to anybody in his own party who's not loyal to him. Hmm. And that's a recipe for a stagnant government, a, a very weak agenda, and somebody who's likely not to serve more than one term. Hmm. Uh, we, we are currently... Um speaking with political analyst Joe Tuman. So, Joe, we're, we're currently in the midst of the longest uh, government shutdown on record. Uh, but in fairness, um, the weaponization of government shutdowns did not begin um, with President Trump. How, how does this shutdown compare with others that you've witnessed? Well, first, in terms of longevity, you know, uh, what are we at, day 32 or 33? I mean, that's that's quite a bit longer than anything we've had before. And in the past, when these things have happened, as you probably remember, Byron, uh, they were long enough to make, you know, front page in the news, but they, it wasn't always the case that they did any kind of lasting damage. Uh, and especially when you have something like this that began over the holidays when, you know, a lot of things in government were going to be closed for the first week or two anyway. It seemed like it was going to be when this began something that would just be a news story, but you know that, that responsible people would resolve this and let it go. And what's different this time, of course, uh, is that it's not just the politicians and the people in government who are going to the mats on this. You know, we're not going to give up and the rest of it. Um, but it, instead, that we have a person with very little political experience and Donald Trump is sort of learning this on the job, who's heavily influenced by. Uh, political commentators who have a lot of influence, like Rush Limbaugh or Ann Coulter or uh, Laura Ingram, uh, you know, for Fox News and the like, and uh, they have a lot of sway. And, and Mr. Trump, being I think a, a, a novice 
politically, even though he might have political opinions, he has very, you know, he's learning this experience as he goes, uh, is unduly beholden to people like that. He cares about their opinion. He worries about them being critical of him. And so you end up in this kind of situation where we, here we go again, we've got another one of these government shutdowns. They happen quite, you know, not, not that often, but infrequently they happen. And instead of that being sort of resolved by the usual political process of we let this go for a few days and then we sit down and responsible heads prevail, in this situation, Trump feels uh, beholden to go to the extremes on this. And it's not even about building a wall. It's not even about being right. It's about making sure that those kinds of people, the Rush Limbaugh's of this world or Ann Coulter, who have sway over millions of Trump's core base supporters, don't start talking smack about him. Mm. And so a lot of his decision-making in this process is, is completely irrational. And uh, if he's really interested in a wall or, or a pocket of walls in different places, the Democrats would give that to him. Right? But what they won't give into him on is creating a, a precedent where he threatens to shut down the government, and then everybody has to stop and do what he says. So, uh, and he's such a poor leader, he doesn't even grasp that nuance. He's so afraid of these people I've talked about before that you don't get a resolution to this, this shutdown like you would have gotten in other administrations where you didn't have a Rush Limbaugh with that much influence, and you had a president who was willing to act at least semi-rationally, and Mr. Trump is not. You, you sort of already answered it, but I, but I would like for you to expand. So how do you respond to those who say, well, both sides need to just sit down and cut a deal, problem solved? Well, uh, I think that's not exactly correct. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has no reason to have to cut uh, a deal because um, – the deal that we're talking about, first and foremost, is this question of using a government shutdown to leverage uh, your political power. And that's a separate issue than the actual thing that we want to talk about, which is um, border security in this case, or, or other issues that we might be worried about. And uh, I think that most people, and, and frankly, Mr. Trump, again, we're going back to my point about his being sort of a political novice where this is concerned. I think anybody watching that broadcast where he had Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in his office, and then he sat down with Schumer kind of blowing Pelosi off and said, I will take the mantle, acting like he's pounding his chest, and I will take the heat for this, and I'll, I'll shut it down, and I won't blame you for it. Well, the moment he said it, every Democrat said, okay, <laughs> may as well go play a few rounds of golf because he's going to stew in his own juice for the next you know, number of weeks. And... Pelosi and, and Schumer and the Democrats have been entirely consistent this whole time, and I'm not saying this to praise them. I'm just pointing out the difference, um, that this was Trump's doing, and, and, and the reason that they're uh, not engaging with him is not because they disagree with him on border security. They've already said, we want border security. We can debate this question about what's a wall, what does it look like, how much wall is there, Will you build them on Native American reservations? Will you use drones in states that don't allow them? A lot of stuff to discuss. But you know, Pelosi's position is we're not going to get to that until you stop behaving like a baby and threatening to shut down government every time you don't get your way. Because you can't get any bipartisan spirit or, or working like that when one side wants to use this kind of nuclear option to, to force uh, a certain result. And 
I, I really think that's the chief difference uh, today is that, that uh, the Democrats are, I think, for most voters in this country who are paying attention, they're on the right side of this issue. And so to your question about, well, how come we don't just negotiate it out? I think the Democrats would be happy to, but what they're trying to avoid is Mr. Trump creating a precedent where he or his successors um, can use a government shutdown as the nuclear option to to force Congress to give the president what he wants. And they don't want to go along with that, and I think they're right to do that. Because we're such a soundbite culture, though, um, do you think there could come a point where Democrats look like they're more interested in gaining political points here than than doing a deal because so much is driven by sound bites and and not the nuance that 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 um, is often required to understand these policy measures. Well, I, I I think that certainly within Trump's base, let's start there. Uh, they're never going to see anything Mr. Trump has done is wrong, and so they'll all there'll be a thirty thirty five percent of the people who want to blame the Democrats for this. And there are certainly other Republicans like Mitch McConnell who want to make it sound as if the Democrats are being unreasonable here. We're trying to do this. Um, but to, to Speaker Pelosi's credit, she has been consistent on this position. She's never said, we don't want border security. She simply said, you must reopen government first. Because, and, and of course, Trump doesn't want to because that's the only leverage he has in this discussion. But what he doesn't understand is the longer this goes, since he's being blamed for it, and the worse it gets, and the more economic impact it has, the more naive and stupid it's going to make him look. His best play at this point is to be magnanimous and reach across the table and say, you know what, you're right, let's take this off for the time being, and now if we take that off, what, what do you want to talk about? And get a deal. Change the subject. I mean, that's, that's what a smart politician does. Uh, I remember years ago, um, in one of Jerry Brown's earlier incarnations as governor, uh, where his party lost the race, I think. Um, he won, but uh, his party lost a ton of seats. And I'm trying to remember what it was that he caved on. It was maybe it was a was property. It, was, it prop th- was it Prop 13? It might have been Prop 13. And instead of being behind it, I mean, uh, opposed to it as he had been in the campaign, he totally got behind it and uh, shepherded things through. And he paid zero political costs for that, except for a couple of people who were like, Mad that he was taking a Republican position, but by and large, I mean, he was reelected. Didn't it? Didn't in the end cost him at all. And people looked at him and said, "Why are you doing that?" And that's because that's politics. You know, you have to recognize the reality of the situation. Donald Trump would be smart to follow Governor Brown's example. Um, these are the cards you're dealt. You don't. You know, it's not two years ago, Mr. Trump. So you don't control the House and the Senate and the White House. You control. The White House, and you've got a, a guy with much more experience in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who's kind of going along with you right now, but would drop you like a bad habit at the first chance he had if if you cross him. And uh, in this environment, the House, because of their control of the appropriations committees, is hugely powerful in this. And Nancy Pelosi is nobody's fool, and she's got way more experience than Trump does. I mean, he's really better off engaging people not threatening and, and, and claiming he's going to shut down government. That's that's just a recipe for a one-term presidency. Uh, what do you make um, of the BuzzFeed story, just just in light of everything that, that was surrounding it? I mean, that in and of itself was um, unique, shall we say. Yeah. 
I, I, well, you know, you're the journalist more than me, so I, <laughs> I, 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 I want to put the question back on you in some ways. But, but from what I have read and thought about of this, I'll just give you my quick answer, and then I'd really like to hear sure. your perspective. Fair enough. Analysis. Fair enough. Um, is that uh, I don't read Mr. Miller's claim that these things aren't factual. Some aspects of this are not factual. I don't read that as a total repudiation of everything that they wrote. I think that there are parts of that that they clearly had correct. Um, otherwise, he would have said so. You know, if, if it was if it was all of it was 100 percent wrong, he would have said so. Um, I, I think there's likely uh, a factual error of some kind or a, a either overrepresentation or underrepresentation in what BuzzFeed wrote, probably about uh, in their assessment of uh, the reporters' assessments of what it was Mueller had and had already learned from the information that he had. And, uh, you know, the the way the article came out, of course, suggested that Trump had told uh, his lawyer, Mr. Cohen, to lie for him, and he had had done so before Congress. As we know, legally, that would be suborning perjury, which is a felony, uh, and and, uh, certainly adequate grounds for impeachment. Um, And it was very difficult for the Republican Party to uh, not remove a president who did something like that. I mean, it smacks of Watergate uh, all over again. Um, But in this instance, I'm guessing that the way that they characterized something uh, was not quite kosher, not quite accurate. And so there was this rebuke. And I think Mr. Mueller as well probably is so careful about not releasing information that he didn't like the notion that these guys are making this claim like they have an insight into his secret organization, if you like, Mm -hmm. a secret examination. And so part of this was a little bit of pushback to maintain or preserve the notion that the Mueller investigation is is working well and is not biased at all and doesn't make mistakes, Mm -hmm. very competent. And uh, I I suspect going forward to answer your question that when all, all of it comes out in the end, in the wash, that most of what BuzzFeed reported would probably be vindicated. And, and, and as I said, it may be that they misread some of the evidence that they claimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what's your <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I largely agree with you. I will just I, I will add something. Um, I, I think that uh, in my time in covering politics, I've never seen anyone, particularly in Washington, control the narrative through silence the way the special counsel has done. Yeah. And I I felt that the Mueller statement needed to be made from their perspective to once again control the narrative through silence. So so they haven't said anything, so everyone's sort of trying to read their minds, and I think that that's sort of been the way they've controlled the narrative. Now BuzzFeed actually says something, that, and so there, I think there was just enough for them to say, Vaguely, it was almost. It almost reminded me what they said. Almost reminded me of um, uh, uh, Federal Reserve Chair um, 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 Mary. Uh, you know, um, um, come on, Joe. Federal Reserve Chair, famous for Joe, saying nothing. No, for, I'm getting old. I just can't remember his name is escaping me. Famous for saying nothing, and everyone thinks it's something, and the market would react. Uh, oh. <laughs> married, married to Andrea Mitchell at NBC. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, you can't remember his name. Either. See, we're getting old, I Joe. can't remember his name either, yeah. but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, would, he was always afraid that saying anything would move the market one way or the other, so he was notorious for 
not saying anything. It'll come to me. But but yeah. Mueller has, through silence, in my view, has operated in in a very similar manner. Yeah. And, and um, so, but this was a time where um, he needed to say just enough to reclaim the narrative. I I, I think you're right about that. And and uh, there is an amazing amount of power, I've always thought, in being silent about things. Because people then read meaning into your silence. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, breaking, breaking news, Alan Greenspan, it finally came to me. Thank you. Ah, very there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in, in, in our case uh, here, there is, there's a lot of meaning, as I said, in, in silence. And, and uh, yeah, I, I've been married for, for 35 years. The, the arguments that are worse that my wife and I have ever had are the kind where somebody says something and the other person doesn't say anything in return. And, you know, it, it, and then it blows up into a way worse fight because you're not participating. And right. also the other person can't read your silence. And so they don't know what that means. And so I agree with you. I think Mueller has uh, been very smart and it's also allowed him to stay focused without outside criticism necessarily. Um, Cause they don't know exactly what they're criticizing um, to be focused on, you know, his investigation and the like. And, and I, I think that that's, it's, as you said, very powerful. Finally, in the few minutes we have left, I'm talking with political analyst Joe Tooman, uh, California Senator Kamala Harris, uh, your senator, form, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. has entered the presidential sweepstakes. Access her strengths, if you will, and where will her support derive in what is already a crowded field and most likely will become even more so? Okay. Um, strengths. Uh, this is still an era where the Me Too movement is powerful. Um, we've just come out of a midterm election where we saw a huge number of women run for Congress and a huge number of women win seats. Um, Kamala Harris will will be someone, an example of someone that they could look to. Uh, I thought she showed very well during the Kavanaugh hearings, the confirmation hearings, in her uh, rapid, you know, questions that she asked uh, Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, uh, and came across as, you know, all business and no BS uh, with her, and always, you know, three steps ahead of, you know, where the next question was. Um, I think her, her, if you're looking at, at the resume, the Vita, um, her time as a state attorney general in the largest state in the union is, is not insignificant. Uh, having a, a legal background as a district attorney as well in San Francisco, a, li- you know, a liberal place, but you're the DA. And, 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 in a, and she was kind of a law and order person as much as she was a progressive um, as well. And so that's going to appeal uh, possibly to different voters. On the, she's a lovely person, she's a good speaker. She's, you know, attractive. She looks, translates well on television and in person. Obviously, enough all, I think, positives. And of course, she's got this time in the Senate. Um, negatives are things to be concerned about, I guess, if you're running her campaign. Um, the first one for me that screams real loudly is it's it's President Obama Part Two, and I don't mean that in terms of racial background. I'm talking actually about inexperience in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, she's only been in the Senate for a couple of years, and it was kind of the same for Barack Obama. And the downside to that, and I think you and I have talked about this before, um, for Obama was he wasn't there long enough to build relationships with people that mm-hmm. when he became president, he would he would need their support. 
to carry his water, you know, to carry his legislation. And he just hadn't been there long enough. And if anything, many of them resented how quickly he left the Senate and ran for president. And there was a little bit of that now with, with uh, Senator Harris as well. She's only been there for a few years. So in a, in a partisan divided uh, Congress, including in the Senate, um, you know, having people that you know across the aisle that you can call and you can depend on in a, in a special circumstance is really important to getting legislation through or, or convincing the public that you've taken the right position on something. And, you know, Donald Trump right now is, is both lucky and, and, and in some ways not lucky to have a Lindsey Graham in the United States Senate who still kind of has him in his corner and helps to get him out of trouble when he does stupid things. If you're Kamala Harris, who's your Lindsey Graham? Who's the person you could look at there? Um, that's, I, I think, now that may be too much inside baseball or inside politics because your average voter is probably not going to care about that, but I care about that. Um, last thing I'll say about her uh, is as well, of course, you know, she, uh, even though she has the law and order credentials and the rest of it, attorney general, and a little bit conservative that way on the law and order issues, um, she hails from California. And that can be great for picking up votes in California and the like. Um, but in the general election, you know what the rhetoric is going to be you know, mm -hmm. about how we're the left coast and, and we're out of step with the rest of the country and we're our own little world and the rest of it. And she's going to need to have sort of a national persona um, and also a persona that reaches beyond this question about her gender as well. Um, I think the fact that she has Indian heritage and African-American heritage in her background as well is really makes her compelling. She's articulate. Um, but, you know, how much name recognition does she have compared to a Joe Biden? Probably not much, you know, by comparison. So the, the, the work is cut out for her. Her book is doing well now, and she needs as much media time as she can get to make herself known to enough voters, especially in those early primaries. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, then the money will come her way if, if that happens. And if she picks up some early wins, um, then, you know, by attrition, she's going to look more popular. She'll push other people out. Mm -hmm. no, that's, no. There's a lot of work to do. Right. So. Well, as I recall, Bill Clinton was not the front runner um, two years before the 1992 election, nor, this is true. nor Barack Obama in 2006 when he ran. So who knows? That's People couldn't even pronounce Obama's first name. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Barack, Barack, what's that? Yeah. Right. In the last um, thing, Joe, for those who are wondering, and, and this this may be more inside baseball, but you you have uh, individuals such as Kamala Harris and uh, former HUD secretary Julian Castro, who have announced they're running for president. Yeah. And then you have others such as Senators uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten yeah. Hillebrand who said they're forming exploratory committees. Expl can you explain the difference? Well, uh, the exploratory committee uh, is a way of, of not having jumped in, but letting everybody know that you're intending to jump in. And in, in many ways, Byron, that's more important uh, for people in the news than it is necessarily for donors or people who are going to work for you or whatever, because what you're looking to do is to see without having expended too many resources of your own, just by forming the exploratory committee, can you generate any buzz? And uh, oftentimes what will happen when candidates do that is they'll quietly do a poll after they've formed the exploratory committee to see what the public reaction is and are they, you know, is their name recognition any higher than it was before? Um, 
And also, you know, if people in the news do talk about them, then what's what's the chatter? What's the what's the buzz about them, and, and how do they see it? And uh, as opposed to you know, you've you've made your announcement or whatever, and you're going in. There's always good questions about uh, timing on that, and and if you all sort of come in at the same time, then and let's say that there are seven people to talk about, or even three or four people to talk about, in a three or four day news cycle, well, you're going to get one fourth of the attention, right? Mm-hmm. You you oftentimes you want to announce when it's a, it's a low time in the news cycle, and you'll become a story, and that by itself can artificially float you, uh, poll wise for a little while. But, you know, all things being equal, eventually you're going to have to say something uh, that uh, not just platitudes and homilies, but actually make a substantive presentation to convince people that you're the real deal and you at least deserve to make it to the next round, you know, to the uh, after we shed some of these. Because you're going to have 20, 25 people running for this. And Kamala Harris's first job, if we're thinking about this, is is to survive all the not the cuts, because it's not voters who are cutting you at that point, they haven't voted yet, but just sort of in terms of where the money goes or how much news coverage people choose to give to one candidate over another, those not getting money and not getting coverage is a way of being selected out in many ways. And eventually, you know, can, people who want to run will, will look at this and say, that's, that's not going to happen for me this time, and they'll, they'll, they'll bow out. Kamala Harris's first job is, is to survive that first round and also to be in enough news stories that People can pronounce her first name and know who she is and hopefully have a favorable impression of her. And there's a lot of work you have to do with that. That's why she's doing this book now and the fact that the book has, has been some kind of bestseller. Probably not as good as yours, but you know, okay. <laughs> uh, we'll help her with the name recognition. And, and uh, you know, I only have one other concern for her, not, not to belabor this, but uh-huh. I, as good as I thought she was in the Kavanaugh hearings, she does sometimes when she's giving a serious speech sound a little hard, harsh. Uh, it's it's um, it's like a lot. The speeches sometimes, to me, just as my own personal opinion, of somebody who teaches people public speaking, it comes across like tough love, right? Which isn't terrible. I mean, that means someone's still well intentioned, but she sounds a little harsh sometimes. And I'm sure, as a human being, she empathizes. Um, but if she really wants to distinguish herself from the knucklehead we have in the White House now, she needs to learn to or remind herself to speak in ways that communicate uh, empathy, I think, and and not uh, a feminine side or anything like that. This is nothing about gender. Just take some of the hard edge off her and let people see her as, as a nice person, too, as well as a serious candidate. Um, I, I, I think that will resonate with a lot of people because she clearly has the resume for this and she's not afraid to jump in the pool. So go get them. Well, I would be remiss if, if, um, if I did not, if we did not have a follow up and get an update on how Mr. August is doing. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) well, thank you for asking. He's doing great. Thank you. And much to my, my daughter's. uh, So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about my new grandson who's now, almost 11 months old. Um, much to my daughter's consternation, my nickname for him is Gus. <laughs> <laughs> because he's right now, he hasn't learned how to speak yet, but he can say, Gus, Gus. So if I say Gus, he lights up. And um, 
I, I hope you're a grandfather. If not now, at some point in the future. Yeah, no, I, 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 I awesome. well, I, I hear, I hear that it's, um, uh, it's a, it's a good deal. I just know that I um, became very envious of my father. Uh, because that was clearly not the individual that I recognized growing up. It, it just <laughs> it, there was a, a lobo- disparate treatment. A, lo- <laughs> a lobotomy happened somewhere uh, along along the lines, and so I, I look forward to the opportunity to uh, to experience that as well. So now you know, in the grandfather's handbook, they they go back into Jim Crow era times and they pull up this expression called separate but equal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the father would say, I treated all of you separately but equally. Right, okay, okay. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Joe Tillman, my friend, thank you so much for once again thank joining you. me on the public rally. We'll wait, we'll, can't wait till the next quarter what has developed when we talk again. Take care, my Absolutely. friend. Absolutely. Happy to do so. Thanks thank you. so much. Bye-bye. The public rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh